New writing new norm. Writing new, writing norm. Writing new writing norm. You're listening to a podcast by New Writing Norm. norm. When we think of County Durham, we envision minor strikes and a Norman cathedral. St Cuthbert's Shrine with its headless statue, a post-industrial northern landscape and a world-leading university. It's steeped in history, but we don't tend to talk about County Durham in terms of its literary significance. I'm on a mission to prove that there's more to Durham than meets the eye, that alongside its medieval city and worked-out pits, the county is home to a rich and varied tradition of literature. Over the past few months, I've been seeking out the writers, books and poems that tell the story of County Durham's literary past and present. And in this podcast series, I'll be speaking to authors and poets who either hail from Durham or have made it their home. What does it mean, if anything, to be a Durham writer? What role has this place, unique in so many contradictory ways, played in shaping their work? For this episode, I'm joined by Anne Stevenson, a major voice in American-British poetry, a poet who Jay Perini has described as a contemporary Emily Dickinson, working on a small canvas, quietly, with big themes. She was born in Cambridge, England in 1933 of American parents and grew up in New England and Michigan. She studied literature at the University of Michigan under Donald Hall and after several transatlantic switches settled in Britain in 1964. She has since lived in Cambridge, Scotland, Oxford and Hay-on-Wye, but settled in County Durham in the early 1980s, where she has remained ever since. As well as her numerous collections of poetry, Anne has published a biography of Sylvia Plath, a book of essays and two critical studies of Elizabeth Bishop's work. In 2007, she was awarded the Lannan Lifetime Achievement Award for Poetry and the Poetry Foundation's Neglected Masters Award. She also received the Northern Rock Foundation Writers' Award. Anne welcomed me into her home on one of Durham's steepest hills, where we talked about Durham's shifting nature and how the county and city have worked their way through her poetry. I'm Laura McKenzie, and this is Writing Durham. That book is Durham. Well, it's a story that begins, I suppose, in Oxford. And I was in Oxford as a fellow in writing at Lady Margaret Hall for two years in the 70s. But when that ran out, I had no job there. I had a partner without any money. I had no money. So I had to do something. And so we decided, in a very foolish moment, to start a poetry bookshop in Hay on Wye, in you know Wales, Hereford Park. Yes. So uh, we went out to Hay on Wye. I think it was 1978, and bought a house with my father's legacy. My father had left me a legacy, so we bought a house in Hay on Wye, and put a bookshop in it. And I thought I would convert everybody to reading poetry. Well. <laughs> The bookshop is still going. It was a success, but it didn't make any money. So I had to apply for jobs, and the jobs I applied for were writer-in-residence in various universities. And thanks to Robert Wolfe at the uh, Wordsworth Centre, uh, but he was then at the University of Newcastle, 
Uh, I came for an interview, and uh, I think I did it all right. Anyway, I got on with Robert Wolfe, and we agreed about Wordsworth and poetry in general. And so I got the job, came up, and decided not to live in Newcastle, but to try to live in Durham, because I, I thought it was a wonderful city. I thought it was a beautiful city, and the, the cathedral had always attracted me. So we discovered we couldn't really afford to live in Durham City, but we did find a pit village outside called Langley Park, and not a park, but a pit village. And we could get a house there for £900. This was in 1979. Wow. And so I bought a mining house, a miner's house, on Logan Street, Langley Park, near Railway Street, uh, for £900 or so. Eventually I got another one for about the same price next door. (laughs) And uh, here they were. And uh, no loo uh, inside, no inside loo, so we had to go outside. But we did put one in. And and, uh, it was very... It was fun. It was really fun. We painted and we started a bookshop. Well, sort of a bookshop there. But really, Michael, at the time, Michael Farley, decided to start a press called the Taxus Press. And so I was supposedly teaching people about poetry in Newcastle and Durham. And he was running a, a, a press for poetry. But poetry still doesn't make money. <laughs> And eventually, uh, I think the whole thing broke up. Uh, And uh, I found a very old friend of mine, Peter Lucas, whom I'd known for a very long time. And he said, why not marry me? Well, he was a lawyer and had some money. So I married him. How romantic. (laughs) No, very romantic. But anyway... Peter and I have been together for 30 years now, mm-hmm. and it's been very happy and satisfying. But it was a bumpy time there in Langley Park, and yet I think it was the best time for me for poetry I've ever had, even better than Hale and Why, which was actually commercial. Everybody was trying to make money out of books. But I decided in Langley Park... What was money? Didn't matter at all, <laughs> and so we none of us had any money. It was an ex mining village, and most of us were ex hippie or, you know, ex sixties and seventies dropouts. And that finally came, you know, came to a fruition for me, because I discovered that really I could never be what I always thought I would be is some kind of academic, an academic, even a teacher. But no, poetry and academia, just for me, didn't mix. So hell with it, you know. <laughs> and that was wonderful throwing everything away, which almost no one could do now. That was the time when you could live without money in the 70s, at the end of the 70s. I mean, without real money. Now it's much, much more difficult and so changed. So were you living at Langley Park during the miners' strike? 
During the minor strike, yes. Oh, during Thatcher's mm-hmm. uh, reign. <laughs> and Mrs. Thatcher's reign, you know, we were all violently labor and uh, very uh, rebellious. And I think one feels it uh, in the poems I wrote then. But I think at the same time, I knew that coal wasn't an answer to the need for energy. And already people were turning to environmental issues and so forth. So it was a mixed time, really. It was a time of immense change. And finally, uh, one emerged from the Thatcher years as very sure that that wasn't going to be the solution. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are no conservatives in Durham. None. <laughs> no conservatives in Durham. So one was happy in Durham, yes. You picked out several poems from that period. Perhaps we could turn to those. Would you like me to read it? I'd love you to, if okay. you're happy to. Well, this is Langley Park. Let me not live ever without fat people. The marshmallow flesh set thick on the muscular bone. The silk-white perms of sweet sixteen-stone ladies. Luscious as pom-poms or full-blown perfume magnolias. Breasts like cottage rows dropped into lace-knit sweaters. All cream bun arms and bottoms in sticky leathers. Oh, Russian dolls, oh, range of hills. Rosy behind the glow-green park of the pool table. Thorns are not neater are sharper than your delicate shoes. And let me not live ever without pub people, the tattooed forearms steering the queue like a pencil, the twelve-pint belly who adds up the scores in his head, the wiry owner of whippets, the keeper of ferrets, thin wives who suffer, who are silent, who talk with their eyes, The girl who's discovered that sex is for she who tries. A zebra blouse, old vampish back, blown like a lily from the swaying stalk of your skirt. Roses are not more ruthless than your silver-pink lipstick. And let me live always and forever among neighbours like these who order their year by the dates of the league competitions, who care sacrificially for Jack Russell Terriers and pigeons, who read very carefully captions in the advertiser and echo, which record their successes and successes of teams they support, whose daughters grow up and marry friends' boys from Crook. Oh, wedding gifts. Oh, porcelain flowers twined on their vases under the lace-lipped curtains. Save me from habitat and snobbery and too damn much literary ambition. Uh, (laughs) I think that says it all. (laughs) I think so. As a frequenter of Durham pubs, that's a recognisable scene. Those are very real people to me. Real people, yes. Well, of course... I mean, real people. Everybody's real. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, but it is, it is true that pretension 
is something that I've always felt allergic to, mm -hmm. any kind of pretension. And I, that, that sometimes puts me off poetry because poets are naturally pretentious mm -hmm. and ambitious. And this is the world in which I can feel comfortable without being ambitious or competitive. Even. People, of course, compete, but it, it, it was friendly and uh, the atmosphere was that we were really against something else. So we were all together in this coal mining. United pit, by that. Yes, united. Yeah. Yes. The other one I, I'd like to quote from because it's meant so much to me at the time. It's called Forgotten of the Foot, and again, a description of Langley Park. But because the times at that time were so uninterested in capitalistic success, and I'm not, I'm not a natural socialist or anything like that, but I do feel that the emphasis on money has been destructive recently. So... So when I wrote this, when the mind shut down, habits prolonged the story, habits and voices, till grandmother's old ways pass, and the terraces fold into themselves, so black, ugly, and unloved, that all but the saved, success has spared them, and the angel of death by money move away. The towns inhabited by alien, washed-up innocence. The memorial is a pick, a hammer, a shovel, given by the men of Harvey Seam and Victoria Seam. May their good bones waken the living seams of heaven. And then the poem ends uh, with a quote from the Miner's Memorial in Durham Cathedral, which always moves me. He breaketh open the shaft away from where men sojourn. They are forgotten of the foot that passeth by. That's Job uh, 28.4. It's uh, a lovely passage. And that isn't in the original. I think that's in the revised version of the King James, which is uh, unusual because usually I like the original. <laughs> but... Uh, but they are forgotten of the foot, so I called the poem Forgotten of the Foot. You mentioned before that the cathedral had always been something that had drawn you or attracted you. What is the significance of the cathedral for you? Well, yes, I do think. I think it's significantly for me, significant for me because it represents the history of, well, of the kind of religion that one returns to. I love the story of Bede, and I love the story of Cuthbert, and this sort of story. I, I, I am very reluctant to accept uh, creeds and uh, theologies, because I think that they end up by quarreling. <laughs> and uh, so the, the cathedral itself represents, again, the unity, and I think that's why I find it so moving. I go in and sit there and just sit there for a while. It's a meditation rather than prayer, but I find it very moving. I belong to St. Chad's College, which is attached to the university, uh, to the cathedral. And I think Durham wouldn't be the same without the cathedral. No. Because you need that element 
the dignity and the beauty of that element and the age as opposed to the Langley Park element of the coal mining and the unemployment, of course, which has been so acute in the past. Not so much now. Yeah, I think that's something that the county itself yes. is has a multivalency that is quite unique. You yes. have the cathedral and the university and, you know, the quite an affluent socioeconomic centre in the city and then you just go a few miles outside into the pit villages and it's a completely different story. Yes. Of course, you've lived in both, so you've seen both sides of the coin. Yes, and to understand Durham, you need to, to understand both. You have to see that. Uh, I always feel that people are unfortunate here that unless they have university education or unless the university or the cathedral, they have the university cathedral, which represent extreme uh, rationality and intelligence. But you have another side that has, you know, really been deprived. Were there any other poems you wanted to look at? I have one I might read. This is a spring song, which uh, is living in this 900-pound house. (laughs) And everything is dirty with coal dust, you know. The sun is warm, and the house and the sun is filthy. Grime, like a permanent fog on the soot-framed window panes. Dust imprinted with cat's feet on the lid of the hi-fi. Dishes on the dresser and a deepening plush of disuse. Books on the blackened shelves, bearing in the cusps of their pages a stripe of mourning. The sun is warm, the dust motes and the dust mice are dancing. The ivies are pushing green tongues from their charcoal tentacles. The fire is reduced to a smoky lamp in a cave. Soon it will be spring, sweet spring, and I will take pleasure in spending many hours and days out of doors, away from the chores and bores of these filthy things. (laughs) There's a lovely musicality to that poem. Well... I wanted to talk about music because I, I, I was brought up in a musical family and I always assumed I'd be a musician or a teacher of music. And uh, I went uh, deaf when I was about, oh, I suppose my early 20s. I began to go deaf and I couldn't hear, especially hear intonation. I played the cello, was, <laughs> which wasn't very good when I played with other people. <laughs> In, uh, and I couldn't hear my intonation. So uh, I finally decided that poetry was uh, much the best thing for me to do. And I'd always written poems, but never seriously. But uh, I went to the University of Michigan. I went back when I was, uh, well, uh, in, the, in when it was the 60s, to the University of Michigan to get a a degree in English, and met Donald Hall there, who said, you must work on your poems, and taught me, really, that one had to work on poems. And they didn't come, you know, floating uh, into your mind from inspiration. And so uh, I decided to try to publish, and I 
had some luck in America and then uh, came here pursuing my ideal <laughs> English uh, life. Austin's England. To marry Mr. Darcy. <laughs> I married Mr. Darcy, but it didn't really work out. <laughs> Those Darcys never do. <laughs> okay. But, um, you know, it all seems uh, comical now, but it didn't always seem comical. It seems like, it sounds like an adventure. It sounds like a great adventure to me. Well, it doesn't sound comical. I think, I think life is, and my life has been anyway, Mm. quite by accident, a matter of shifting from one idea to another of what I could do and what I wanted to do. Probably entirely selfish, because uh, I'm aware now that uh, concentrating so much on getting myself jobs and published and uh, keeping my poems going so I could keep going myself, I really sacrificed my children in a sense. Because I've always felt that I uh, put my, well, art first. And now I think in horror, was it art or was it just simply egotism? (laughs) So I have double feelings about poetry. People are easy to know in Durham. You know, I've made friends with the street wives... (laughs) <laughs> Streetwise, <laughs> it sounds terrible, like fishwise, but uh, but uh, through a book group here, mm-hmm. and most of them have uh, academic husbands or academic lives, or something, and they're all in different fields, and they're very interesting. Uh, I find people accessible. The whole uh, Durham is an open city, and it's got its flaws. <laughs> of course, it's got its flaws, but I found it easy to live here. And I wonder, do you find any correspondence between the transatlantic places that you've inhabited? Because I think you were at Yale and Harvard or lived in Cambridge and New Haven. Obviously, there's a lot of correlations there with Oxbridge. Well, Cambridge and Harvard and, you know, Cambridge and Harvard and Oxford all think they're the centre of the universe. Yeah. Durham doesn't. It would like to be, but it <laughs> it, it is... Uh, Durham and Newcastle together represent a, a much more uh, broader uh, spectrum. Do they speak more to Michigan and the Midwest, I wonder? Mich- Ann Arbor I liked very much. Mm-hmm. It was a nice place to grow up. Again, you see, academia is very protective. And uh, so I, I always, I suppose there's a good half of me that is still belongs to the academic because I like to read, I like to think, I like to talk, I like to play music, and I can't bear, uh, well, I can't bear Trumpism. (laughs) Or, you know, I cannot bear this kind of popular non-thinking, calling names instead of proving things. Popular non-thinking, I like that. I, I just cannot believe that that's any good for a democracy. Yeah. So we need thinkers as leaders, I think. So, uh, but I'm, everyone's caught in the same trap and something went wrong. Something's gone wrong. Maybe it's just the number of people in the world. Too many people. But certainly inequality. 
an equality of income and an equality of opportunity. Uh, and I think once that not a day passes when I don't get a or we don't get a a plea for money for refugees, for the homeless, for this, that, and the other. And you have to decide where you're going to give your energy and your money and so forth. But it is disturbing. You feel guilty a little bit all the time to live so well when so many have nothing. And how does that sit alongside poetry? Is there a sense of duty in poetry to respond to those kind of tensions or pressures or do you feel like they are of a separate Well I personally can't do that I've always responded to my need to feel what's real and to uh, and yet keep some kind of ideal in mind you know so I don't think I can write the kind of poetry that uh, would be called political. It's just not in me to do that. I don't feel it as poetry. I feel that poetry is individual matter, and I think only a few people read it. I mean, I don't think everybody should read poetry, nor do I think everybody should write it. You know, I don't care about poetry as poetry, the capital P. But I care about insight, and I care about you know, can you make these people understand you know, what they could do to help themselves? Uh, Robert Frost said, and I, it's a funny thing to say, but I must quote this. He said that sociologists want to do good for people and poetry want to do, poets want to do something well. Well, it's always important, he said, for poets to do something well and to not do things, good things for people if they don't want to. If, in other words, sociologists think about other people in society and try to think in terms of big societies. But a poet has to think about what he can do with words to make them say something that isn't said in prose. It isn't said. So it cannot be cut up prose. It has to be, the poem has to come in the words it is. And I think any poet eventually would agree with that. I mean, I think Wallace Stevens said somewhat the same thing in a different way. Elizabeth Bishop did the same thing in a different way. But there are not that many poets. I mean, a poet is an affliction. You don't want to be a poet. You have to be. <laughs> you can't stop being, and you won't stop. You'd rather do good for people. But I seem to not be able to put my heart and soul into being good to people. <laughs> so is a poetic existence necessarily quite insular? Yes, I think so. Yeah. It is now. Yes, I think it is. Of course, you know, it wasn't always. I don't think a writer's life is necessarily. But poetry is now in a little little uh, plot of its own. It's a little castle of its own. I'm sorry, but I don't think anyone reads poetry very much who doesn't either want to be a poet themselves or thinks they might find a key to life in it 
which they won't. <laughs> so Why not? we don't have a Dante anymore. No. And we don't have a Shakespeare anymore. I think we can give up ideas of that. So I, I think it's a very strange thing to be a poet. And, and I wouldn't advise it for most people. But sometimes, I mean, the number of poets that I really think are good, you know, that I really like, well, there are quite a number, but mostly you don't... <laughs> I don't think it's easy to put poetry over to an audience unless they already know the poems pretty well, unless they have a script, unless they have... Or you read them several times. No one can understand a poem on one reading if it's half a good poem. But you must have some faith in readership if you started a press, a Texas press. Oh, yes, I did. I had ambition. I've lost that. I had uh, lots of belief in poetry. I started a poetry bookshop. But in the long run, I think things have changed too. I think poetry has now become a popular subject to study, creative writing. And I am I'm afraid that I do not have any faith in teaching creative poetry. I, I think if you want, if you have to be a poet, you find poems by other poets that inspire you, you become excited, and you learn yourself. And you go to a, someone you trust, maybe a friend or maybe another poet, and you try your poems out. And uh, I think often these groups are good. But once you get a group that simply spurs itself along and is not critical enough, then that's no use at all. <laughs> because you need really a strict and severe criticism if you're going to be any good. And it's very hard to give now. And you certainly can't grade creative energy, creative poetry. I don't think you can grade You have to if you're giving classes. So I think, I think if you write poetry, that's wonderful. Uh, but do it, you know, do it with a, a sense of you're not doing it to make yourself famous. <laughs> uh, you're not doing it to get a name. You don't want to be a celebrity. What you want to do is say something that can be said in another way. You're compelled to. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you cannot write a poem unless you're compelled. And I'm not writing poems now because I haven't felt compelled for quite a time. You say Donald Hall advised you that you needed to work on your poems. They didn't just come out of thin air in imagination. Well, you have to work on a poem. Yeah. Well, you start with a line or two, and where it comes from, one doesn't know. But... Uh, finally find that the poem uh, is forming in your mind unconsciously. A lot of it happens asleep. And uh, when you're asleep, your unconscious sort of unfastens itself. And you come up with some ideas. And any poems I write that I keep and like are usually written between four and six in the morning. <laughs> or maybe between six and eight or ten. But I... Uh, I'm, a, you know, I'm a, a very much coming out of sleep and suddenly seeing something, understanding something that you didn't even know you were thinking about. 
And that sometimes brings a poem. Of course, there are poems you write because people ask you to write a poem. Mm -hmm. And they make a, a difference between verse and poetry. And I can write verse. But poetry is rare. And I think everybody finds it rare. Yeah, Robert Graves said that all true poetry by necessity had to come out of a poetic trance. The poet had to be in an alt say, alternate state. Yes. Be it dream life or... Yes, it, it comes out of a, a sort of trance. Well, you have to be aware uh, that things are going on in your head that you don't really know all the time. And that's why working for grades or working for a good mark or something like that does no good at all for poetry. I, I do think you can teach people to write uh, decent prose. And I think everyone should be taught to write decent prose. But uh, but the creative bit is very... It, it's too familiar a word now. Everybody uses it. I want to be creative. Well, yes, well. <laughs> but it, not everybody is naturally creative. So which poets do you read? Which Well, at the moment I'm reading Thomas Transdermer. And I discovered... I discover people, you know. Uh, I think he's very fine, and he believes in this, of course. I mean, he's a very much a trans poet, uh, and, uh, I, I, and his translations, I don't usually like translations, but the translations by Robert Fulton, who's Robin Fulton, who, who's been working, or had worked with Transdermer for a long time, uh, are really excellent. I don't think they're lost. And they've lost anything. Yeah. They're very visual poems, very visual. So that's my latest... But before that, I, I think Tom Gunn is very good. I discovered him, My Sad Captains. Mm -hmm. And I think he's, his form is absolutely excellent. I mean, he keeps to say so many syllables per line and so to rhyme schemes, which Transdormer doesn't. And that's a different kind of poetry. So uh, so I, I, I've discovered, as it were, Tom Gunn, who I knew about, but I really hadn't responded to him. And I like uh, the American poet A.E. Stallings, Alicia Stallings, who uh, lives in Greece and has, uh, began as a classical scholar, and she's a uh, Greek, you know, she's just... She uses a lot of... Uh, she understands Greek, Latin, and classics better than any poet I know now. She really uses her knowledge. But she's an excellent and witty uh, formalist, as it were. Well, I don't like the word formalist, but she does write in, you know, in forms that I admire, and I can say, oh, that was a good thing to do. So uh, I like Angela Layton, who's uh, Cambridge now, She's been an old friend of mine for a long time. Richard Berengarten in Cambridge. The number of people who I think are, are good poets. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's very hard to say why you suddenly like someone and suddenly are in tune with their poetry. It's, again, a matter of the unconscious sort of surfacing. <laughs> Perhaps you recognise the real in it, if that's what you're mm. concerned with. 
And that's why so much of poetry I read, I read four lines and I say, I don't think I'm going to like this, and I stop. So I suspect, well, there's so much else competing with poetry. I mean, the, the internet, the, uh, you know, tele- well, television, but everything to do with iPlayers and everything. People are so visually, people are so visually fixed now. They want entertainment, sort of button entertainment press the button and off you go, you know. And doing it yourself is uh, something you w- people want to do, but they don't realize this hard work. <laughs> so they'd rather sit back and just let life entertain them. And somehow the, the rich are more spoiled than the poor. You know, but we're all spoiled. Or in a sense, not spoiled, ruined, but... Spoiled like children. And who's spoiled but Donald Trump sitting there shouting abuses from the play yard instead of arguing any proofs. Really. Yeah. He says fake news every time he doesn't like something. How does he... You know, that's just sloganism. That's a terrible, terrible thing to do. I don't think much of uh, the Conservative Party's candidates either. <laughs> So no. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> so you know, what are we? You know, because anybody who who can who can fascinate and lead a crowd seems to get on, and that's very dangerous. What did Hitler and Mussolini do? See, and haven't we learned? <laughs> haven't we learned? So it's hard to write about today. For me, I don't feel I'm really part of it, and I can't use a mobile phone properly, and I can't do any of these things. I don't even have a microwave. Well, I don't have a microwave either, <laughs> so I'm on your team for that one. Mm. I think in terms of bringing people together in a sense of community and uniting, that is something that's special about Durham City and that you have this kind of hub or omphalos with the palace green and the cathedral it's like all roads in the city lead to that place and this kind of communal atmosphere it's there. the shape of the city really, yeah too. on the peninsula the hill leading up yeah yes as well i think uh, i must say i'd like durham to be recognized as a city of literary <laughs> significance if you like because i think it is and i don't think people know it enough You talk about your life as a series of shifts. Of shifts. Of shifts. You came to Durham. What made you stay? Well, I'm old. (laughs) I can't shift anymore. (laughs) Most of my life, up till very recently, has been divided between North Wales and the isolated hill cottage and the city of Durham. And, I must say, Newcastle, which is a lively city. And uh, I miss Cambridge, where I was born and where I grew up, in, uh, where I, I lived many times, wrote poems about coming back to Cambridge. But you can't live in three places, <laughs> and you have to live in one place, really. And, uh, and I have to say the National Health Service is very good up here. I must... I've had beautiful... I've had a cochlear implant in my head and a, a, a metal clock pacemaker put in my chest 
So I'm a bionic woman. I was just about to say <laughs> they made you bionic. <laughs> and uh, it has all been, I mean, for an American, that this should be on the health service is just astonishing. Long live the NHS. But, and, oh, I think they've done, I've done And look at America with its troubles again. No, it, it's, it's a very good place to live if you're older. <laughs> well, on that note... And they, they, they really care. I mean, there's a woman who comes around and visits here just to be sure we're all right. Now, that would... You know, that's terribly generous <laughs> yeah. thinking. So uh, I'd like to say that I don't know, the health service up here is really special, both in Newcastle and here. And in Darlington. Do you get through to Newcastle often? Not very often now. I used to go a lot. Because there used to be the Morden Tower there for poetry. And that was great fun. But I don't think they do that anymore. You know, those were, those were the old days. So did you used to read at Morden Tower? Oh, yes. Uh, yes. And there were, I knew everybody there, yes. I bet you've got some stories. What? I bet you have some stories. Well... <laughs> Might not be Basil Munting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, but uh, yeah. yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. And on that note, I think I'll say thank you very much, Anne. It's been a joy speaking well, to you. I hope I was positive enough about Durham, but I think it's it's uh, it's a worthy city for a worthy poets. Worthy poet. <laughs> well, the worthy writers of all kinds. Worthy writers. Many thanks to Anne Stevenson for taking part in the Writing Durham conversation. This podcast was supported by Durham University as part of a wider project on Durham's literary heritage, which has been funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Next time, I'll be joined by award-winning poets Gillian Allnutt and Kayo Chingonyi. We'll see you then. <laughs>